Welcome to the Ramp Church Podcast. We are so honoured that you've joined us today and we pray that you will be encouraged and inspired by this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website, ramp.church forward slash mcr or find us on social media. Now let's head straight into this week's message. Thank you, Pete. One more time, Merry Christmas. We're so glad that you're here today at Ramp Church. I love the Christmas season. I love holidays like this because it gives you an opportunity to really focus in on some of the central features of the Christian faith that you may not always think about through the year. You know, as a church, our messaging is so broad because the Bible says so much about all these different areas of our lives that we may not spend a lot of time on some of the pillar things that make up the Christian faith. But when you come to holidays like this, like Christmas or Easter, or something of that nature, you kind of refocus on the origins of the story and what it is this Christian faith is all about. And in doing that, we get to see Jesus with fresh eyes. So that is our goal this afternoon, is we're creating some space right in the middle of the holiday schedule to say, let's see Jesus with fresh eyes. Let's bring him our hearts of adoration. At the end of the message today, we'll also be receiving communion to also not just consider Jesus or worship Jesus, but also to receive the gift that he is to every single one of us this holiday season. So let's begin in Luke chapter 2. We're going to read a couple classic Christmas texts, but from there, we're going to learn hopefully some new things about the Christmas story. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse number 1. Luke chapter 2, verse number 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the worlds should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city or his city of origin. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. There were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day... In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe 
lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that today as we bring our hearts to scripture, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. That, Lord, the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. We don't want to simply hear words or read words, but, Father, we want to hear and see truth. We want to see you today with a fresh lens. We ask that, Father, today in Jesus' name, amen. One of the primary features of the Christmas story is not just the fact that Jesus was born, but that Jesus was born in a certain location. Jesus was born in a certain city. And this fact is very clear in each of the Christmas accounts. Right here in Luke chapter 2, also in Matthew chapter 2, that we'll consider in just a moment. But we have to understand that for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, it was not just accidental and it was not just coincidence. It was something that God spoke about prior through his prophets. We'll consider that in just a moment as well. But it wasn't just something that God spoke about before the gospel account happens. It was something that God went to great lengths to make sure that it actually happened. That's how the story begins in Luke chapter 2. Joseph is engaged to a young woman named Mary. She is carrying Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit. They're not living near Bethlehem, though that's the place that Joseph is originally from. They're living in the north of Israel in the Galilee in a town called Nazareth. But very inconveniently, Caesar Augustus, who is this Roman emperor, he has in mind that he wants to take a census of his entire empire, and that census requires everyone to go back to their hometown to be registered. And I'm wondering, was it not just a random thing that Caesar thought? Maybe God put it in the heart of Caesar to take a census of his entire empire because God wanted to make sure that his son Jesus was born in a certain city, the city of Bethlehem. So God goes to great lengths to make sure that Jesus, though he would later be raised in Nazareth, he's not born in Nazareth. He goes to great lengths to make sure that Jesus is born in a specific city, the city of Bethlehem. That makes me ask the question, why? Why was it so important for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem that he causes the entire empire to be displaced and inconvenienced just so Joseph and Mary would make the journey from the north of Galilee down toward the south to the city of Bethlehem? Well, if you want to know why something occurs in the Gospels, it's actually very good to consider Matthew's account of that story. So let's go to Matthew chapter 2. And the reason why it's good to consider Matthew is that Matthew many times will include details that the other Gospel writers don't include. He includes some of the prophecies that go behind the details that happen. And whenever Matthew quotes a prophecy... He's not just doing it to say, see, God's real. He spoke about this before it happened. 
When Matthew quotes a prophecy, what he's doing is he's revealing the meaning behind the event that happens. He's saying that not only did this event happen, but this is the backstory that gives it significance. When we read Matthew chapter 2, we read the significance behind the story of Bethlehem. So let's go to Matthew chapter 2, read verses 1 through 6. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Let's read it. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And he quotes here a prophecy from the book of Micah. Verse 6, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler, and then here's the key phrase, who will shepherd my people Israel? Who will shepherd my people Israel? The reason Jesus was born in Bethlehem is because according to this prophecy, out of Bethlehem would come not only a ruler for Israel, but a shepherd for Israel. See, when the wise men saw the star of the king, they assumed that king would be found in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the city of the king. But Micah prophesied and said, well, God's not just going to raise up a ruler for Israel. A ruler could be born anywhere. He's going to raise up a shepherd for Israel. And if God's going to raise up a shepherd for Israel, that shepherd needs to come from the city of Bethlehem, which makes me ask the question, why? Why is it important for the king of Israel to be born in Bethlehem? What is it about Bethlehem? That gives that king the flavoring of a shepherd. Well, if you go back into the story, if you go back into the Old Testament, what you'll find is that the city of Bethlehem plays an important role in transitioning Israel out of instability into stability. The city of Bethlehem plays an important role of transitioning Israel out of cycles into rest, out of wandering into permanence, out of these cycles of idolatry and chronic fatigue into a place of experiencing the Psalm 23 reality of God as their shepherd. How does Bethlehem play that kind of role In the story of Israel. Well, you've got to look at where Bethlehem is really focused on and introduced in the Old Testament. You see, the children of Israel all throughout the Old Testament, they live a wandering story. It begins with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They live very nomadic lives. The initiation of Abraham's story in Genesis 12 is God speaking to him and saying, Get out of your father's house. Go to a land that I will show you. And for the rest of his life, he lives very nomadically, believing a promise, knowing a promise, but never really experiencing the fullness of that promise. His son Isaac lives in a similar way, has a little more stability than Abraham, but again, not yet seeing the fullness 
of what God promised him to be settled in a land in order to worship God freely. Jacob, the same way. He lives a wandering life, a displaced life. Eventually, he settles down to a degree and he has 12 sons. One of those sons, the 11th one, Joseph, continues to live the wandering story through the betrayal of his brothers. He is displaced from his homeland of Israel. And he has to go down to Egypt where he becomes successful and his family in a foreign land. Eventually, the other sons of Jacob, the brothers of Joseph, they go down to Egypt in order to be fed during famine. And they end up staying there for over four hundred years and it looks like it's a stable situation but they're not there in a homeland they're there as slaves and how many people know when you're living somewhere as a slave you're not living there in peace and rest it's anguish it's fatigue it's difficulty you still feel like you're wandering even though you're planted to a degree so they continue to live this wandering story and then of course God raises up a deliverer named Moses and when God brings them out of Egypt, through the leadership of Moses, what do they do? They live 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. After that, God raises up another leader after Moses named Joshua. Joshua brings them into the promised land, and you anticipate now is the time of rest. Now is the time where they will be able to put their roots deeply into the soil of God's promise and worship God the way in which he has called them to worship him. But what we see after the book of Joshua is the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, its theme is cycles. Because though they're in the promised land, they're not in the promised land in a satisfactory way because they're constantly agitated by their enemies. And the reason they're constantly agitated by their enemies is their hearts are constantly wandering away from God. We see this over and over in the book of Judges. The children of Israel, they're in the promised land. But the Bible begins to tell the story of how they begin to serve the idols of the nations around them. So God then hands them over to their enemies. And then in that place of oppression, they cry out to God for a deliverer. God raises up a judge who is a deliverer and brings their hearts back to God. And then within a few years, the cycle starts over again. Their hearts wander away from God. They're oppressed by their enemies. And over and over and over again and when you read the book of Judges it's rather aggravating because you're like ah when is the day going to come when Israel's heart is secure in God when will the day come when they're planted in the land when will the day come when they're not constantly wrestling with oppression when will they experience God as shepherd Psalm 23 You restore my soul. When is that going to happen? And you get all the way to the end of the book of Judges, and each new judge that comes up, you think maybe this is it, maybe this is it, and it's not it, it's not it, it's not it, it's disappointing, and it's not rest yet. And then, after the book of Judges, you get the book of Ruth, where the story of Bethlehem comes into focus. The entirety of the story of Ruth revolves around the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, this is important, we'll come back to it later, was founded by someone named Salmon. Salmon then has a son named Boaz, who later becomes the husband of Ruth. And what we find in the story of Ruth is not just a love story, not just a romance story of Boaz and Ruth. What we find is the origins of David the king. Let's read the end of Ruth. You don't have to turn there. We'll put it up on the screens. And let's consider how the story of Ruth introduces a very significant development 
in the Old Testament storyline. This is Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 16. It all has to do with Naomi and Boaz and Ruth. And I won't get into all the story of Ruth, but here's what it says. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, This is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. And Ram begot Amenadab. Amenadab begot Nishon. Nishon begot Salmon, who founded Bethlehem. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. Why is this little genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth centered around the, Bethle- the story of Bethlehem? Because what it's saying is that all of these years of cycles and wandering, they're about to come to an end because it's in the city of Bethlehem, David's lineage begins. David's story begins. And David is the one who will lead Israel's heart out of wandering into a place of faithfulness to God. And because David leads Israel's heart out of wandering into a place of faithfulness, David also leads them into a place of true rest in the land that God gave them. You see, the significance of David, I know that we know him as David and Goliath David. I know that we know him as king of Israel David. But David was much more than just a boy hero and much more than just a king. He was a pivotal figure that caused Israel's hearts To abandon idolatry and to live in a place that was focused on the presence of God. You find that in different places throughout the scripture. Let's consider for just a moment the end of Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is an important one, though it may not be a favorite on your list of psalms. Because it's quite long and it feels rather discouraging when you read it. 72 verses long. You know, So if you do like a psalms a day type thing, you're like, wow, 72 verses today. And so there's a lot to get through. And when you read the psalm, it just tells the history of Israel's rebellion. And you find yourself rather agitated because you're like, oh, again, again. It just goes through the whole story. God rescues them, but they rebelled, and God brought them into the wilderness, and they didn't believe. And over and over again, it just chronicles the whole history of Israel's rebellion against God. And it ends seemingly mid-story. But if you understand the significance of David, you realize it ends with quite a climax. And here's the way it ends in Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72. It goes through all of Israel's wandering and rebellion. But then here's how it concludes in verses 70 through 72. God also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. And from following the ewes that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Now this doesn't sound very exciting unless you understand that when it's talking about David shepherding Israel... What it's saying is that their long years of nomadic wandering, both spiritually and physically, it's finally over. Because David was able to shepherd their hearts and shepherd their affections toward God. And because David 
took the affections of Israel and directed it not to himself, not to an idol, but to God. God made renewed promises to establish Israel in the place of promise, in the place of inheritance. Now, this idea of David bringing Israel into a new place of rest, of affection for God, of holy surrender. It's found all over the Bible. But let's go to one more passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You're like, I didn't know why I was going to read so much Bible on Christmas Eve. It's good, again, to focus in on the central um, pillars of the Christmas story and what's going on. Because Jesus being born in Bethlehem was not a random coincidence. It has meaning. Not only for Israel, it has meaning for us. The meaning for us we'll get to in just a moment. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 8. We're going to read here how David's heart for God was not just an in, did not just have an individual consequence attached to it. It had a corporate consequence attached to it. Because what David did, he did as king and representative of Israel. So let's read this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David has just made a commitment to God. He's saying, God, I want to build you a house. When you see the language, God is rather taken back because he's saying, David, you want to build me a house? I never asked anyone to build me a house. And David is so, God is so moved by David's desire that he begins to make promises to David. Picking up in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David. So God is speaking to the prophet Nathan about David. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, David, from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will, a, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies. So the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish your kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men but with the, and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. What's going on in 2 Samuel chapter 7? God looks at David and sees the fidelity of his heart toward him. God looks at David's leadership and sees how David is guiding the affection of Israel away from idols 
to the one true God, the God of Israel. And God is so moved by David's leadership and by David's desire for him that God makes this promise. David, what you're doing today, it will never end. This will not just be a bright spot in Israel's history and then they collapse again into idolatry. But your house and your kingdom will last forever. You will always have a son on the throne of Israel. And because David, because your house is going to rule over Israel, Israel will always be established in the land of promise. Because when their hearts are true to me, the promise is sure. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history... That sounds really, really good, but really, really disappointing. Because once you get beyond the reign of David and you get to his son Solomon, all of a sudden, idolatry creeps back up. Then in the days of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, boom, the kingdom gets split between Israel and Judah. And you get more idolatry, especially in the northern kingdom of Israel. And then also in the southern kingdom of Judah from time to time. And that ultimately leads to the point in the 700s BC where the Assyrian Empire comes in and scatters the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the Roman Empire comes in, the Babylonian Empire, then the Romans, and they start to scatter the Jews from the south. And you're like, Lord, it looks like what you said in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is nothing but lies. You said you would plant them in the land forever. You said that David's house would always rule over them. You're implying that the heart of Israel would never wander from you again because David's son would always be on the throne. And when you read the Psalms, what you get is the psalmist, the Jewish writers and thinking, longing for David's son, saying where and when will God's promises to David be fulfilled? Where and when will the second Samuel covenant actually happen? And that's why it's so significant that in Matthew chapter 1, verse number 1, the entire New Testament opens with this phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Why does the whole New Testament begin by calling Jesus the son of David? Because it's saying this is the moment that the 2 Samuel, prom- Samuel 7 promises are actually happening. God is now doing what he said he would do. And he is raising up the son of David who will shepherd the heart of Israel away from idols back to the God of Israel. Who will also then lead the Jewish people in such a way that they will be planted in the land forever. So when we get to Luke chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, and Jesus is being born in Bethlehem, what's happening there? It is an emphasis on what Matthew 1.1 already said. The son of David, the ruler of Israel, is finally arising. Not just to be king, but to be shepherd. To guide the heart of Israel away from idols. Away from wandering, away from cycles into a place of true rest. Now you may be hearing that and you go, okay, well that's exciting for Israel, but what does that have to do with me? I'm not Jewish. So what does that have to do with me and why is that such an exciting thing at Christmas 
to understand that Jesus was born at Bethlehem. Well, there's one more detail about Bethlehem you really need to know. Not only is it the birthplace of Jesus, not only is it the birthplace of David, not only did it have a, a prophecy in the prophet Micah that out of Bethlehem a ruler and a shepherd would arise, but in the city of Bethlehem, that's the place where Gentiles step into Israel's story. It's the place where non-Jews step into the benefits of Israel's promises. How do we know that? That's what I said a moment ago. The founder of Bethlehem, he was a man by the name of Salmon. Salmon's wife was a lady by the name of Rahab. Rahab was from the city of Jericho, an enemy of Israel. She should have been destroyed when Joshua conquered Jericho and the walls came down. But because she put a scarlet thread out the window, which is a type and a shadow of us holding to the blood of Jesus, Rahab is not destroyed with Israel's enemies. Instead, she steps into the storyline. And becomes someone that inherits Israel's promises. Then, after Rahab, they have a son by the name of Boaz. Boaz marries a lady by the name of Ruth. Ruth is not Jewish. She is from Moab, another enemy of Israel. And when Ruth decides to join herself to Boaz, she's not just marrying a man. She is laying hold of the God of covenant. She's saying yes to God's promises. So when Jesus is born in the city of Bethlehem, it's not just because God is fulfilling his promises to Israel. It's because God is inviting the nations into the story. And he's saying right here in this city, I'm raising up a shepherd for Israel, but not just a shepherd for Israel. I'm raising up a shepherd for the nations. And what, the, and what David did for Israel, the son of David will do, not only for Israel, he'll do for the nations. He will shepherd the heart of the nations away from their idolatry, away from their wandering, away from their fatigue, away from their harassment. He will shepherd the heart of the nations away from all of that and bring them to the God of promise. Bring them to the God of covenant. Bring them to the God who makes all things right. Let's read one more passage. This is in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I want to read to you how the second Samuel chapter 7 promises. While being for Israel or not just for Israel, if we come to the God of Israel through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what it says in second, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, a Gentile is a non-Jew, someone that is a not a part of the people of Israel. It says, at one time, that's who you were. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. That at that time you were without the Messiah. At what time you were without the son of David. At one time you were without the shepherd from Bethlehem. At one time you were left to your own idolatry. At one time you were left to your own cycles. You were left to your own wandering. 
At one time you were without the Messiah. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, you were like those in Jericho, you were like those in Moab, you were outside the story. At one time you were a stranger, an alien from the commonwealth of Israel. Continue reading. Strangers from the covenants of promise. See, what Paul is saying is when you were outside of Israel, you were not just a stranger to the Jewish people, you were a stranger to the promises. But something changed. Let's keep reading. At that time, you had no hope, and you were without God in the world, verse 13. But now, in Christ, in Jesus, in the Messiah, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What is it saying? Through the blood of Jesus, you're no longer outside the story. Through the blood of Jesus, you're no longer an alien or a stranger. Through the blood of Jesus, you no longer are absent of hope and without God in the world. But through the blood of Jesus, the shepherd of Israel becomes your shepherd as well. And just like David did for the Jewish people, Jesus does for us he guides our hearts away from our wandering and leads us to a place of faithfulness to God. Leads us to a place of rest so we can fully receive the promises of God. I want to invite the musicians to join me. and We're about to receive communion. Let me give a bit of instruction about communion. In just a moment, we'll stand together, and after we do, the stewards will come, and they'll pass buckets similar to the way in which we receive offering. Instead of receiving something, we're distributing something. We're going to distribute the communion elements. As they distribute the communion elements, the team is going to lead us in singing through another Christmas course. And as they sing through it, let's let our hearts be captivated by the story all over again. That this man, Jesus, was born in Bethlehem because God was giving him as a gift to all humanity. God was giving us a gift, as it says in Isaiah chapter 9, unto us a son, a child is born and a son is given. And in just a moment when we open the communion elements and receive them, what are we doing? We are saying, God, we receive this gift, your gift your son, your shepherd. And in just a moment, before we receive communion, and I, I want to invite every single person to reflect on your own heart posture toward God. Where are you today in your relationship with Him? Are you still wandering around looking for rest and all of the things that cannot, can never give you rest? Are you still looking for all of these other sources? Looking to all these other sources to make you feel settled and secure and at peace? Or have you put your attention upon the shepherd that God has provided? His name is Jesus. And if today you'll open your heart to him, and say, God, I receive your leadership in my life, then he'll not only give you eternal life in the age to come, but he will right here, right now, lead your affections 
back to God and lead your heart into a place of peace. So just before we stand, I want to take a moment and pray over us. And then after I do that, we're going to stand and we'll open our communion elements and just hold them while the team leads us in worship. So Father, I thank you today that according to your word, you have raised up for us a shepherd from Bethlehem. Lord, you have provided for us. Lord, according to Psalm 23, Lord, a shepherd that would restore our souls, lead us down paths of righteousness, all for your name's sake. So, Father, I pray today that anyone who has a heart that is wandering from you, that, Lord, you'd begin to lead them back to you. You begin to lead them this, this afternoon, Lord, back into a place of full attention upon your presence. Lord Jesus, lead us in a way that we begin to renounce all the other things that have caught our attention, caught our affection. Lord, lead us into a place where we are wholly and fully given to you, Father. In Jesus' name.